Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. This episode is a bonus episode, and we'll be talking about the function of the board of directors within a business. To help us answer these questions, our guest today is Ari Abacasas, founder of Iconic Labs and was the chairman of the board at SeatGeek. Iconic Labs is a business and funding acceleration platform customized for early stage Israeli tech startups looking to accelerate growth and cut time to market. SeatGeek is the largest event ticket search engine. Ari is also a venture partner and mentor at Dream Adventures and has over 20 years of experience in building technology companies as an operator, advisor, and venture capital investor. It was terrific chatting with Ari about boards, and I hope you find this as useful as I did. So without further ado, here's Ari. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you today? I'm doing great. Mike, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for uh, for joining me, especially during these uh, turbulent times. What initially attracted you to, to uh, technology and startups? I was enamored uh, with startups back in kind of the web 1.0 timeframe in the late 90s. I'd actually started the very early part of my career in media and started seeing how technology the intersection of technology and media was changing the way that media was being created, consumed, monetized, uh, and so forth, and decided uh, basically in the late 90s um, to join a corporate VC fund. So uh, I learned through that experience uh, the uh, kind of the company formation process and how to invest and what entrepreneurs expect from an investor, uh, et cetera, from the beginning of that cycle to the end of the cycle, which culminated basically in a market correction in, in the early 2000s. Uh, and that was a bit of a valuable um, experience and uh, really used that to then spend more time on the investing side and the operating side. And fast forwarding to basically the last 10 years, I've had the opportunity to spend time with lots of uh, startup founders and entrepreneurs as an angel investor. And in certain cases, as you mentioned, a board member to really help them get from early stages to mid and later stages and ultimately to to exits. Yeah, I can only imagine what life was like at Internet 1.0 and how exciting it was. So what led you to found Iconic Accelerator? Iconic Labs is a New York City-based accelerator focused on helping uh, Israeli-founded startups that typically start in Israel, uh, which want to scale their business in the New York, excuse me, in the U.S. market. And we use New York City as kind of the initial gateway into the U.S. market. You could kind of think of them, uh, think of Iconic as a tech stars uh, customized for Israeli founders. I co-founded the Accelerator about five years ago, and to date, we've worked with more than 40 uh, startups, uh, have helped them raise tens of millions of dollars and dozens upon dozens of uh, commercial um, introductions. And the inspiration uh, for doing that, um, as someone who has spent a lot of the time in the tech industry in New York and in the US, was that my partner and I saw this gap in the market where there was a lot of innovation happening with Israeli founders. And on a per capita basis, Israel is one of the leading uh, startup ecosystems. Um, 
and yet there was a challenge and a struggle to connect to the U.S. market in any kind of efficient or structured way. And that's kind of what triggered the idea. And uh, here we are. I mean, it makes a lot of sense with with seeing the opportunity of helping Israeli founders and startups come over and grow in in the U.S. market. It's, it it uh, makes a lot of sense and really terrific what you what you've done it at a uh, iconic. So you've been an advisor. How do you think about your role? as an advisor and what does it mean to be an advisor for a startup? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, advisor is one of those words that's thrown around pretty loosely and it it can mean different things to different companies and to different people. Uh, Advisors on one end of the continuum can be folks that, you know, an entrepreneur and a CEO just reaches out to every once in a while to get Uh, feedback or an introduction or be a sounding board, all the way to what I would say the other extreme is, which is someone who you almost would consider, particularly at the early stages, as an extension of the business. And I tend to play more the latter role than the former role, uh, where I view kind of my role as an advisor is trying to provide unbiased, uh, helpful, and constructive both criticism and support, you know, one hand being the biggest critic, but the other hand being a cheerleader and kind of knowing when to do uh, either and helping the company get from, you know, either pre-product and or, or pre-revenue stages to post-product and post-revenue stages. And in the course of that process, helping them uh, making sure that they have enough resources, typically financial resources to get there and then beyond. So I, I kind of view that um, as, you know, a, a role uh, that an advisor should play and kind of how I like to spend a lot of my time. I think that, I think that's really helpful just in terms of the different, the, the, the various ways one can be an advisor uh, to a company. This, uh, this episode, we're going to be talking a lot about the board of directors for a company, what a board member is, how board members can be helpful. You've, you wrote a really great article, the five ways the best board members will add value to your startup. But let's start from the basics. So what is a board of directors? That's an important question because I think um, a lot of folks are familiar with boards of directors in public companies rather than private companies. And sometimes there's confusion around board of directors versus a board of advisors. So the primary function of a broad uh, board of directors is to have a a kind of independent governance body uh, that typically includes investors in the company uh, to help provide, in my view, several really important things. One is um, discipline around how the company allocates its financial resources and uh, fundraising uh, as well. Secondly, strategic input in terms of where the company is and where it hopes to go. And thirdly, helping them make the right operational decisions around key executive hiring and things that have material impacts on the long-term trajectory of the business. I do think boards sometimes cross the line of becoming a little too operationally oriented and kind of getting into the weeds. And I think there is a bit of a balancing act that boards need to do uh, with that uh, to, to, to really focus on the areas where they can add the most value. So how, how should a founder think about board construction, especially at the early stages? Yeah, it, it's 
important that a board typically gets set up at the right time. So the early stage tends to be the time when a board is put together round or a strong syndicated round that's led by sophisticated or participated by sophisticated investors. Um, and I'm, I'm a big believer of just keeping things simple initially, where when you do construct a board, keep the board as small as possible. Make sure uh, as a kind of management team, you retain kind of control of the board early on. Uh, and make sure you have the right partner uh, in place, investment partner in place with the board. So I'd say in, a, in an ideal scenario, if it's the first time you're assembling a board and it's your first round of capital where you're raising you know, anywhere from a half a million to $2 million in outside money, probably want to try to stick with something like a three-person board where two of the seats are, you know, co-founder seats or key executives of the company. And the other seat is either the lead investor of your round, or uh, if it's not clear who that is or what that is, uh, someone who is meaningful, which you could always try to churn your board, but, but there is some friction potentially associated with that. Um, and also getting back to kind of having the right partner, who your uh, investment partner should be. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs focus on valuation and economic terms, but you know I wouldn't sell short the importance of who is writing that check and who's going to kind of sit with you, uh, not just for the board meetings, but in between the board meetings to be ready to take your call in good times and bad. Uh, and, and that's kind of how you want to think about it. You want to think about it as a business partner as much as it is a fiduciary responsibility. Founders should be also, for a investor that's interested in investing in uh, the company, should be also doing their due diligence and seeing how they behave um, on how that particular investor behaves on the boards for other companies in their portfolio, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the things that founders can do is actually in diligencing um, a fund is talk to some of the other entrepreneurs that are part of that portfolio and uh, get some personal experiences. You know, how was the board member that you're speaking with? How, how did they act in times of crisis? How did they act when there were really important decisions that needed to be made, hard decisions that needed to be made and get kind of a small sampling uh, around that to kind of validate whether the fit is there. Now, let's say it's very early stages for um, a founder. They Walk me through maybe some of the scenarios that don't look um, ideal for um, investors of, of, of for, for VCs when it comes to the board. Yeah, so I, I would say that the rule of thumb is typically when there's a, an institutional uh, lead of a funding round uh, where, you know, that funding round is probably a minimum of, you know, half a million to a million dollars uh, on up. That's when a lot of these boards generally um, are uh, are created. And a lot of times that's an insistence on the part of the lead VC fund who's uh, doing the heavy lifting with diligence and negotiating the deal documents, et cetera. Um, I, I would say that's not the only scenario though in which a board does or should get formed. Um, there are other types of funding rounds that are done. And, and an example of that could be, you know, maybe you've raised a million dollars, but you haven't had an institutional lead. Maybe it's primarily you know, a scattering of um, angel investors 
um, that have written you know fifty to hundred thousand dollar checks. Um, those investors as a group will probably want some oversight of their investment for peace of mind and for the ability to add value. And in those cases, um, whether it's check size or credibility or a combination of factors, um, that board will be both uh, negotiated and uh, a, a designate will be um, a, effectively agreed upon by both the investors and the founding team. Um, and there is value in, in doing that. It doesn't necessarily just have to happen when it's an institutional round. Now, the thing to keep in mind for founders is that obviously when you do have a board constructed, uh, part of what you're giving up uh, is, uh, and I'll use this in air quotes, control. Um, now you have another voice and vote at the table that um, ultimately should lead to better decisions with the company because uh, it, another perspective, experience perspective, hopefully the you know, that's around the table uh, that could help the founding team think through issues uh, in a you know more extensive and, and maybe experienced way. Um, and so that's the value of it. But by doing that, it also introduces uh, yeah, some potential uh, time friction uh, around getting decisions done, uh, et cetera. So you want to make sure you don't create a board just for the sake of it, because it does come at some cost. But by the same token, you know, once you've raised sufficient capital from the right group of investors, that timing ends up making sense. How do you how do you think about good governance versus bad governance? And you know, there's one of the big buzzwords out there that I hear a lot of VCs say is that we're founder friendly. Uh, how do you think about how does being founder friendly or non founder friendly relate to board decisions, or is that irrelevant? Yeah, th those are dangerous words. Or <laughs> founder friendly, I think. Um, that's certainly a good marketing, you know, term to to describe a VC fund. What VC fund doesn't want to be founder friendly or position themselves that way? I think what what that means is in practice having a fund that really tries to put themselves in the shoes of the entrepreneurs, uh, sometimes at the cost of being, you know the investor and the preferred security in a round, which is effectively, the dichotomy in most cases between, you know, uh, what securities investors hold and what securities uh, the entrepreneurs and the employees hold. So, um, you know, what does being a founder-friendly uh, investor mean? I think it means really contributing to the value-add exercises of the company. So, I think in a lot of cases, um, there are board members who view their role as financial overseers, which basically means they're you know, effectively almost an external CFO to the company. They encourage the companies to put together financial plans and then have a discussion with the companies of how they're performing against that, good or bad. Uh, and that's an important part of the role, but it's, in my view, a small part of the role. I think the greatest value provided by uh, a board member is actually in between the board meetings when you're helping them kind of navigate their way through the plan uh, and doing things as we alluded to earlier, whether it's making introductions you know, to potential customers or strategic partners or helping them find key talent or investors, et cetera. And that is, I think, where the good investors and board members uh, distinguish themselves from the pack. How, how can a CEO put its board to work? 
That's an important question. I think in, in many cases, what ends up happening is that the relationship tends to be more reactive than proactive. And I think it is, if you're going to derive value uh, from your board, the onus is upon you as the CEO of the company to uh, try to extract as much value as you can. Keep in mind that many board directors from funds sit on multiple boards, right? So they have a limited, uh, limited time uh, as it is to pay attention to you. And the, the old saying goes, you know, the squeaky wheel kind of gets the grease. And, and to some degree, that's true here as well. It is up to you to um, use your board wisely and make it easy for them to engage with you. Um, you know, try to get very specific feedback and make very specific asks rather than, you know, keeping it an open-ended relationship of, you know, board, I need your help. Well, what do you need help with? Fundraising? Okay, what does that mean? What's the profile of investor that you're looking to get, you know, a conversation going with? Um, are there, is there a list you've put together? Do you, have you looked into my LinkedIn profile to see if I can connect to any of those on your behalf? The more specific the ask, the more ROI you're going to get as the founder CEO uh, of, of a startup to extract that value. And you mentioned something that I think is really important and is kind of a low maintenance tool that I think a lot of entrepreneurs have at their disposal, which is this idea of a recurring investor update. I'm, I'm a very big fan of sending periodic emails to not just your board, but quite frankly, all your investors in the early days of a company to both give them a heads up in terms of what's going on at the company. Uh, and equally as important, make those asks, right? Um, you know, one of the last things you should have in these emails is here's how you can help me. I am looking for X. If you know of anything, anyone that could address that for me, let's talk. Right. So again, around this idea of being proactive with the relationship, these are some of the things that uh, a CEO can do. I think that those are some great points. And also, I think if you're very early on giving those investor updates very early, you're only it's only going to become quicker and going to be developing a, a habit for you. And so um, it'll become easier to do. And, you know, then you'll be able to, you know, make your action items even that much more specific and that and and much better because you'll have a lot more experience doing so. So I completely agree with you there. For first time founders, what have you seen them struggle with the most when it comes to board meetings? So I think in the early days of board meetings, it, it could be a very intimidating experience, as, as you can imagine, where start out board meetings, you're Quite frankly, if you think about it, you're really still developing the re relationship with your lead investor. So that, that's kind of going on in the background as well. You probably have, have spent some time with them in the diligence process. Uh, but you know, typically, the relationship is still cementing. And you, you don't really know the nature of the relationship until that honeymoon period is over. Uh, you know, you raise the money, you announce it, everyone's in love. And then the money needs to be put to work. And, and now, you know, you're truly working in joint partnership together to build the business. So I think in the early days, there's a getting to know you period. And um, in a lot of cases, it probably takes a handful of meetings before, uh, you know, you get your rhythm down and structure board meetings in a way that's optimal, time efficient, et cetera. I think uh, what you tend to see in the first days of board meetings is, you know, uh, they're not structured very well. There's a lot of tangential conversations that end up happening, and the two hours or however much time 
is allocated towards it gets used up before you really get to the crux of, of important issues. And that's one of those things that gets better um, over time. I highly encourage um, companies to develop an agenda you know, ahead of time uh, for each board meeting, get into the hands of your board members, ideally a week ahead of the board meeting or board call, give them time to digest, uh, get the low level questions out of the way so that when you do have the meeting, you could actually spend it on go forward issues uh, and open items and have brainstorming sessions and get guidance rather than just, um, you know, regurgitating what's happened already uh, and effectively serving time, you know, just getting everyone up to speed in terms of what's happened, you know, uh, up to that point. And uh, I see a lot of board meetings uh, get, you know, quite frankly, waste a lot of time covering that piece and not enough time on, you know, how to kind of help the uh, the company on a go forward basis. I know I asked this earlier. I'm not sure if we actually covered it because we did talk about the finally the the, the founder friendly piece versus non founder friendly piece um, a lot. But I wanted to know if you can touch on as well um, what what good governance versus bad governance looks like. B- boards are a, a, a very useful and productive mechanisms. Uh, they can help create value. They could also potentially destroy value. How can they destroy value? You know, if you have a three-person board and you and your uh, investment partner butt heads, you know, you have philosophical differences or personality differences, that's going to make it harder to, to align. Uh, it's going to take time to get to decisions, um, et cetera. And in the world of startups, time is money. So um, you have to look at it with both lens. That's why it's so critical to do the diligence on both sides. Uh, of you know who your investment partner is, uh, particularly if they're going to take a, a, a board seat. What distinguishes good governance from from bad governance? Uh, again, I'll kind of go back to um, you know the value add activities that a good board member uh, provides, um, which is you know everything from you know the strategic part, the financial part, and kind of the human capital uh, piece of that, and really. Um, Kind of coming to you and say how how could I be helpful to you at this time uh, as an investment partner? What can I do to help you get through uh, certain decisions and, and 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 arrive at those decisions? And I think that's what uh, a good board member does. What I would describe as the you know, bad board members are more reactive, uh, play the more you know the role of a more traditional you know passive investor that's more about. Um, asking questions of why things didn't happen and not helping you try to find solutions to to address them. Uh, and I think that's kind of a, an important distinction. Yeah, I mean, I think that those are all great points. I was wondering if you happen to have any examples of if you've ever been on boards that maybe for some period might have been in some ways fairly dysfunctional. Sure, let me, um, I'll take you one step further. Let me give you an example of what I think has been a, a productive board experience versus uh, one that uh, was dysfunctional. So as I think you know, I was uh, on the board of a company called SeatGeek, a, a, a ticketing app that has differentiated itself among the likes of Ticketmaster and StubHub, probably for the first five plus years of their development. And uh, th- this was an example of just a board that really kind of rode together uh, as, as though we were a crew team, 
uh, yet had kind of diverse voices at the table. Um, and it, uh, there are so many instances of, of how I think the board helped in the early days of the development of the company. And I'll just prove or provide one one just example. So uh, when the company uh, had looked to to basically raise a post-seed round, uh, they were kind of outside the sweet spots of a being what I would describe a seed stage company and an A stage company. And uh, like with many other startups that are in these in-between stages, it's a little less obvious who the right uh, investment partners might be. Um, and how do you structure that deal? How do you get money through the door relatively quickly so that you can raise a proper A round? And uh, one of the investors on the board, an institutional investor, effectively helped facilitate um, a, uh, an intermediate round, which ended up being you know, an attractive round for the company by leveraging one of their LP relationships, which just got, kind of goes to show you how far they were willing to go to um, you know, demonstrate their commitment and conviction of where the company was headed. Uh, and that's you know, a relationship that was unlikely to come about independent uh, of that board member's involvement and saved the company a lot of time, uh, helped them raise uh, you know, money at a good valuation and helped set them up quite nicely for what ended up becoming you know, their next ten to tens of millions of dollars uh, type of round. Um, so that's that's kind of an example of a, a specific example of how I think a board can really help make a difference on something as simple as you know a specific round of funding. On the other side of that, I've you know uh, when I started my career and I was doing more corporate VC, um, I'll cite an example maybe with less specifics just to protect the uh, the innocent here. But uh, I was involved in a board that had um, at the time I think it was five or seven. Uh, board members, uh, a handful of which came from varying strategic institutions, um, and by virtue of that, actually had um, some other agendas outside the outside of just maximizing the value of the portfolio company itself. And so, you know, in that setup, you know, we 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 ended up banging our heads on a couple of different things. One, the board was just too big. We had too many people for the size of the company. It was still a relative early stage company. And two, uh, not only did we have too many people, which made it challenging for the CEO to kind of come to agreement on you know, important issues, but each of these folks, or at least in a handful of cases, because they were involved in a strategic organization, organization may have been looking for you know, very specific uh, outcomes and probably had some biases around certain decisions, whether it was you know, business partnerships that the company could or should pursue, where it should, you know, raise money from, et cetera. Um, and that ended up just being, um, you know, I hate to put in these words, but value destruction. You know, lots, lots of time was wasted. Uh, the company, uh, for a variety of reasons, not just this, but I, I think the governance piece certainly did not help, ended up having to raise bridge rounds and ultimately ended up recapitalizing and cleaning up the cap table. And I think part of that uh, was due to the fact that it just was not set up properly to begin with. The second story, it seems like really maybe one of the takeaways is really thinking constructively about having a small board, especially in the early days. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? 
I should probably preface my answer by saying I don't read as many books as I would like. I'm more of a short form reader. I, I read paragraphs at a time rather than chapters um, at a time. I would say one book that I uh, enjoy both on a personal and professional level is a book that came out, geez, probably, I may be off in this, but maybe 10 years ago about Pixar. I don't know if you have read it yourself or came across it in the past, but it's basically about the development of Pixar, which you probably know is a company that Disney ultimately acquired a company that was started or came to fame primarily through Steve Jobs. But uh, it's really um, one of the many interesting sides to that story was, I think it's called Creativity Inc. is the exact title. Uh, And it's written by one of the early CEOs of Pixar prior to Steve Jobs getting involved. But it was a uh, really interesting kind of case study around how you could put discipline around Uh, creativity. Um, And a lot of people think of creativity in the business context as being something that's, you know, inspirational, unstructured, serendipitous, you know, can happen at any time. Uh, And one of the things that Pixar did so well, uh, and it really hits you hard, is uh, they set up um, very detailed processes and procedures around coming up with film ideas and executing on those ideas, which would surprise you as someone who's probably seen some of these movies. You know, typically when you look at a movie, you're like, oh wow, that hit a nerve. And it hit a nerve because of a combination of random things happening together. And uh, the book itself actually shows you that these things were fabricated. Um, and what was amazing is we, many of us know, Pixar ended up you know, batting a thousand in the movie in the, in the early days of their movie business, which is unheard of. Uh, because you know, with most movie studios, you know, if you're hitting you know, 10%, 20%, they carry the rest of the portfolio. And here, you know, they were coming out in the early days, one movie a year or every two years, and they were blockbusters, right? And so it makes you understand that, wow, they were able to blend, blend business discipline around a creative, what ultimately is a very creative product, to uh, build a very valuable company that Disney ultimately acquired for you know, billions of dollars. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think that's, that's really fascinating. I'll, I'll certainly have to check it out and, and we'll, and we'll certainly include that book in the show notes. It really sounds interesting. It's, it's, it's also funny. I actually read a case study on Disney's acquisition of Pixar. What's interesting about how Disney acquired Pixar is Steve Jobs said, once uh, Disney was going to acquire and, and, and they were negotiating, he said that um, you have to keep everything separate. We're not going, even though, of course, the Disney Studios, you know, of course, Disney does animation and, you know, Pixar, of course, does animation. But Steve Jobs was very adamant that these two studios are remaining separate, that there's no crossover. There's no, there's almost like no communication. I'm not sure what it's like right now, but he was very adamant that like you have to keep Pixar separate and kind of do their own thing. Uh, apparently, one of the reasons why I think. Uh, Steve Jobs, after the acquisition, became the um, Disney's largest shareholder. And the reason why, apparently, that he wanted to say that once Disney acquired was really actually to look out to uh, to Pixar, saying, 
I'm now the largest shareholder in Disney, but I am looking out for your interests. I am, you know, going to keep Pixar separate from Disney. So I thought that as well was like a fascinating piece when Disney acquired Pixar, because I would have thought that they would, would have, there would be a lot of integration between the two. But apparently, um, I'm like I said, I don't know what it's like now, but uh, by that time it happened, he was it was very adamant uh, to keep it all separate. I think he was astute in uh, in doing that, and it probably has worked well for them and it's probably a lesson that non-creative companies can take as well a lot of times uh and this maybe is another podcast but a lot, you know a lot of value is destroyed when one company acquires the other company and a lot of the reasons that motivated the acquisition in the first place ironically is the first things that are destroyed whether it's company culture um you know the the, the decision making process uh, the recruitment strategy, whatever it is. Uh, and you know, the vast majority of acquisitions do not work out well because of those reasons. Uh, Disney, you know, and maybe it's because Jobs pushed hard on it, you know, was wise enough, at least in the early days, to you know, leave them be and be, you know, do what they do best and reap the rewards of that. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting too, because it's one of the most, I mean, I mean, our professor kept saying it's, you know, one of the most successful acquisitions in the history of acquisitions, right? It's interesting how, you know, because when you think, you know, acquisition, you think, you know, layoffs, you think of how do you, you know, synergy, you think of all these things of combining companies, but this was the complete opposite, right? Yeah, it, it was an amazing acquisition and, and possibly superseded by their acquisition uh, of Marvel, which was uh, also uh, an incredible and the numbers bear it out, of course, given how many blockbuster films uh, they've made in the last five years and how that's driven both top and bottom line uh, for Disney is effectively one of the foundations of their streaming service right now. So, uh, yeah, they, they've been very good at, uh, and I would say, uh, uncharacteristically for big companies, very good at uh, M&A. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I completely agree. So what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? I, I wish that venture capitalists, and this is going to sound somewhat ironic, uh, would, would take on more risk than they do uh, and would be kind of pure to their origins. So by that, I mean, you know, in the early days of venture capital, you know, these institutional funds actually backed ideas, not, you know, post-product, post-revenue. Um, they were truly seen as the risk takers uh, of, you know, first outside money. Um, and over the years, I think what's ended up happening is that, you know, uh, they've gone upstream, meaning, you know, more proof points before they write bigger checks uh, or even equivalent size checks. And they've left a gap in the marketplace, which thankfully has been filled in by friends and family and by the angel community, which is obviously a, a, a huge part of the funding ecosystem today. And it just, you know, it's unfortunate that you have many funds, not all of them, as they get successful because they want to raise more money and collect more fees and have more upside, tend to uh, ironically get more risk averse. Um, and quite frankly, uh, yeah, what the ecosystem needs is for them to maintain that risk tolerance because that's ultimately what fuels great companies. Um, it's easy for a company, and we've seen this, we see this every week in TechCrunch and other tech press, once a company is humming with its metrics, yeah, it, it's not a problem raising the money. It's those early days 
that is you know, the most challenging and when companies you know, need the, probably the most support. And so um, it would be great if more and more funds kind of harken back to the, the uh, you know, pure model of what VC investing uh, was in the early days. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of investors on the show that would certainly um, agree with you. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? So my, uh, if I had to choose one, uh, I would say get into startups for the right reason. Some of the most successful founders do it because they truly feel like it's a calling and they are solving a problem that they are passionate about and determined to figure out rather than you know some of the other uh, potential benefits of be, being founders, you know, fame, fortune, uh, et cetera. Uh, so I would just challenge founders before you start your business, ask yourself, are you doing it um, for the right reasons? And are you truly passionate enough uh, about the business that you are willing to make the sacrifices that will be required uh, personally, financially, et cetera, for the first several years of getting it off the ground. So that, that would be you know, one source of feedback I would give. I think that's a great point. Ari, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your thoughts on uh, the board and as well as uh, just, just sharing your, your, your incredible experiences. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mike. It, it was a blast. Uh, really enjoyed it. I hope this helps jog some thoughts in, 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 you know, with the audience and love to come Come on board again uh, whenever you want me. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Ari, and I really appreciate him taking the time. To keep up to date with Ari, you can follow him on Twitter at Ari Abek. That's A-R-I-E-A-B-E-C. Ari has also written several thoughtful articles for Entrepreneur, in which I've included a link to his author page in the show notes. Certainly highly recommend if you have some downtime. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be useful. If you're a founder and working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on this show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.